for, on their death-dealing and regular volleys, and the white-haired form who led their foes with such fearless audacity struck terror to their superstitious souls, filling them with dread and dismay. The struggle that followed was short and decisive, animated by the voice and example of their leader. The small band attacked their savage enemies with such vigor and show of discipline that in very few minutes the Indians were in full flight for the wilderness, leaving a considerable number of dead upon the ground. Of the villagers only two or three had fallen. The grateful people, when the turmoil and confusion of the affray were over, turned to thank their venerable leader for his invaluable aid. To their surprise he was nowhere to be seen. He had vanished in the same mysterious manner as he had appeared. They looked at one another in bewilderment. What did this strange event signify? Had God really sent one of his angels from heaven, in response to their prayers, to rescue them from destruction? Such was the conclusion to which some of the people came, while the most of them believed that there was some miracle concerned in their strange preservation. This interesting story, which tradition has preserved in the form here given, has a no less interesting sequel. We know, what most of the villagers never knew, who their preserver was, and how it happened that he came so opportunely to their rescue. To complete our narrative we must go back years in time, to the date of 1649, the year of the execution of Charles I of England. Fifty-nine signatures had been affixed to the death warrant of this royal criminal. A number of the signers afterwards paid the penalty of that day's work on the scaffold. We are concerned here only with two of them, Generals Welly and Goff, who, after the death of Cromwell and the return of Charles I, fled for safety to New England, knowing well what would be their fate if found in their motherland. A third of the regicides, Colonel Dixwell, afterwards joined them in America, but his story is void of the romance which surrounded that of his associates. Wally and Goff reached Boston in July, 1660. The vessel that brought them brought also tidings that Charles I was on the throne. The fugitives were well received. They had stood high in the Commonwealth brought letters of commendation from Puritan ministers in England, and hoped to dwell in peace in Cambridge, where they decided to fix their residence. But the month of November brought a new story to Boston. In the act of indemnity passed by Parliament the names of Welly and Goff were among those left out. They had played a part in the execution of the king, and to the regicides no mercy was to be shown. Their estates were confiscated, their lives declared forfeited, any man who befriended them did so at his own peril. These tidings produced excitement and alarm in Boston. The Puritans of the colony were all warmly inclined towards their endangered guests. Some would have protected them at all hazards, others felt inclined to help them to escape, a few thought it might be their duty to take them prisoners. The illustrious fugitives settled this difficulty by privately leaving Cambridge and making their way overland to New Haven. Here they were well received. In truth, the ref, John Davenport, one of the founders of the colony, did not hesitate to speak to his congregation in their behalf. We quote from his bold and significant words, whose slightly masked meaning his hearers failed not to understand, withhold not countenance, entertainment, and protection from the people of God, whom men may call fools and fanatics, if any such come to you from other countries, as from France or England, or any other place, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, hide the outcasts, betray not him that wandereth, let mine outcasts dwell with thee. Moab, be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. Mr. Davenport was not afraid to live up to the spirit of his words. For several weeks the regicides dwelled openly in his house. But meanwhile a proclamation from the king had reached Boston, ordering their arrest as traitors and murderers. 
News of its arrival was quickly received at New Haven. The fugitives, despite the sympathy of the people, were in imminent danger. Measures must be taken for their safety. They left New Haven and proceeded to Milford, where they showed themselves in public, but by night they covertly returned, and for more than a week lay hid in Mr. Davenport's cellar. The cellar is still in existence, and the place in it where the fugitives are said to have hidden may still be seen, but their danger soon grew more imminent. Peremptory orders came from England for their arrest. Governor Endicott felt obliged to act decisively. He gave commission to two young royalists who had recently come from England empowering them to search through Massachusetts for the fugitives. Letters to the governors of the other colonies, requesting aid in their purpose, were also given them. These agents of the king at once started on their mission of death. They had no difficulty in tracing the fugitives to New Haven. One person went so far as to tell them that the men they sought were secreted in Mr. Davenport's house. Stopping at Guilford, they showed their warrant to Mr. Leakey, the deputy governor, and demanded horses for their journey and aid and power to search for and apprehend the fugitives. Deputy Leete had little heart for this task. He knew very well where the fugitives were, but managed to make such excuses and find so many reasons for delay that the agents, who arrived on Saturday, were detained until Sunday, and then, as this was pure in New England, could not get away till Monday. Meanwhile a secret messenger was on his way to New Haven, to warn the fugitives of their danger. On hearing this startling news they hastily removed from their hiding place in Mr. Davenport's house, and were taken to a secluded mill two miles away. The royal messengers reached New Haven and demanded the assistance of the authorities in their search. They failed to get it. Every obstacle was thrown in their way. They equally failed to find any trace of the fugitives, though the latter did not leave the immediate vicinity of the town. After two days at the mill they were taken to a hiding place at a spot called Hatchet Harbor and soon afterwards, finding this place too exposed, they removed to a cavern-like covert in a heap of large stones, near the summit of West Rock, not far from the town. Here they remained in hiding for several months, being supplied with food from a lonely farmhouse in the neighborhood. The royal agents, finding their search fruitless and their efforts to get aid from the magistrates vexatiously baffled, at length returned to Boston where they told a better story of the obstinate and pertinacious contempt of His Majesty's orders displayed by these New Haven worthies. The chase thus given up, the fugitives found shelter in a house in Milford, where they dwelt in seclusion for two years, but danger returned. The king demanded blood revenge for his father's death. Commissioners from England reached Boston, armed with extraordinary powers of search. The pursuit was renewed with greater energy than before. The fugitives, finding the danger imminent, and fearing to bring their protectors into trouble, returned to their cave. Here they lay for some time in security, while the surrounding country was being actively scoured by parties of search. On one occasion, when out of their place of shelter, they were so nearly overtaken that they only escaped by hiding under a bridge. This was what is known as Neck Bridge, over Mill River. As they sat beneath it they heard above them the hoofbeats of their pursuers' horses on the bridge. The sleuth hounds of the law passed on without dreaming how nearly their victims had been within their reach. This was not the only narrow escape of the fugitives. Several times they were in imminent danger of capture, yet fortune always came to their aid. A day arrived in which the cave ceased to serve as a safe harbor of refuge. A party of Indians, hunting in the woods, discovered its lurking occupants, fearing that the savages might betray them, to obtain the large reward offered. The fugitives felt it necessary to seek a new place of shelter. 
a promising plan was devised by their friends, who included all the pious Puritans of the colony, leaving the vicinity of New Haven, and traveling by night only, the aged regicides made their way, through many miles of forest, to Headley, then an outpost in the wilderness, here the ref, John Russell, who ministered to the spiritual wants of the inhabitants, gladly received and sheltered them, his house had been lately added to, and contained many rooms and closets, in doing this work a hiding place had been prepared for his expected guests, one of the closets, in the garret, had doors opening into two chambers, while its floorboards were so laid that they could be slipped aside and admit to a dark under closet, from this there seems to have been a passageway to the cellar, with this provision for their retreat, in case the house should be searched, Mr. Russell gave harbor to the hunted regicides, the secret of their presence being known only to his family and one or two of the most trusty inhabitants, the fugitives, happily for them, had no occasion to avail themselves of the concealed closet, their place of hiding remained for years unsuspected, in time the rigor of the search was given up, and for many years they remained here in safety, their secret being remarkably well kept, it was in 1664 that they reached Headley, in 1676, when Colonel Gough so opportunely served the villagers in their extremity, so little was it known that two strangers had dwelt for twelve years concealed in their midst, that some of the people, as we have said, decided that their rescuer must be an angel from heaven, in default of other explanation of his sudden appearance, there is little more to say about them, General Wally died at Headley, probably in the year of the Indian raid, and was buried in the cellar of Mr. Russell's house, his secret being kept even after his death, his bones have since been found there, as for General Goff, his place of exit from the surf is a mystery, tradition says that he left Headley, went westward towards Virginia, and vanished from human sight and knowledge, the place of his death and burial remains unknown, it may be said, in conclusion, that Colonel Dixwell joined his fellow regicides in Headley in 1665, he had taken the name of Davids, was not known to be in America, and was comparatively safe, he had no reason to hide, and dwelt in a retired part of the town, where his presence and intercourse doubtless went far to relieve the monotony of life of his fellows in exile. He afterwards lived many years in New Haven, where he spent much of his time in reading, history being his favorite study, in walking in the neighboring groves, and in intercourse with the more cultivated inhabitants. The Ref. Mr. Pierpont being his intimate friend, he married twice while here, and at his death left a wife and two children, who resumed his true name, which he made known in his last illness. His descendants are well known in New England and the Dixwells are among the most respected Boston families of today. How the charter was saved, not until James I.I. became king of England was a determined effort made to take away the liberties of the American colonies. All New England, up to that time, had been virtually free, working under charters of very liberal character, and governing itself in its own way and with its own elected rulers. Connecticut, with whose history we are now concerned, received its charter in 1662 from Charles I.I., and went on happily and prosperously until James ascended the throne, this bigot tyrant, who spent his short reign in seeking to overthrow the liberties of England, quickly determined that America needed disciplining, and that these much too independent colonists ought to be made to feel the dominant authority of the king, the New England colonies in particular, which claimed charter rights and disdained royal governors, must be made to yield their patents and privileges, and submit to the rule of a governor-general appointed by the king, with paramount authority over the colonies, Sir Edmund Andros, 
a worthy minion of a tyrant, was chosen as the first governor general, and arrived at Boston in December, 1686, determined to bring these rampant colonists to a sense of their duty as humble subjects of his royal master, he quickly began to display autocratic authority, with an offensiveness of manner that disgusted the citizens as much as his acts of tyranny annoyed them. The several colonies were peremptorily ordered to deliver up their charters. With the response to this command we are not here concerned, except in the case of Connecticut, which absolutely refused. Months passed, during which the royal representative ape kinley manners and dignity in Boston, and Connecticut went on undisturbed except by his wordy fulminations. But in October of the next year he made his appearance at Hartford, attended by a bodyguard of some sixty soldiers and officers. The assembly was in session. Sir Edmund marched with an important air into the chamber, and in a peremptory tone demanded that the charter should be immediately placed in his hands. This demand put the members into an awkward dilemma. The charter was in Hartford, in a place easy of access. Sir Edmund was prepared to seize it by force if it were not quickly surrendered. How to save this precious instrument of liberty did not at once appear. The members temporized, received their unwelcome visitor with every show of respect, and entered upon a long and calm debate with a wearisome deliberation which the impatience of the Governor-General could not hasten or cut short. Governor Treat, the presiding officer of the Assembly, addressed Sir Edmund in tones of remonstrance and entreaty. The people of America, he said, had been at the greatest expense and had suffered the most extreme hardships in planning the country, they had freely spent their blood and treasure in defending it against savage natives and foreign aggressors, and all this had been done for the honor and glory of the motherland. He himself had endured hardships and been environed by perils, and it would be like giving up his life to surrender the patent and privileges so dearly bought and so long enjoyed. Argument of this kind was wasted on Sir Edmund. Remonstrance and appeal were alike in vain. It was the charter he wanted, not long-winded excuses, and he fumed and fretted while the slow-talking members wasted the hours in what he looked upon as useless argument. Night had been drawing near on his entrance. Darkness settled upon the assembly while the debate went on. Lights were now brought in the tallow candles of our colonial forefathers, and placed upon the table round which the members sat. By this time Sir Edmund's impatience at their procrastination had deepened into anger, and he demanded the charter in so decided tones that the reluctant governor gave orders that it should be produced. The box containing it was brought into the chamber and laid upon the table, the cover removed, and there before their eyes lay the precious parchment the charter of colonial liberty. Still the members talked and procrastinated, but it is not easy to restrain the hound when within sight of the game which it has long pursued. Before the eyes of Sir Edmund lay that pestiferous paper which had given him such annoyance. His impatience was no longer to be restrained. In the midst of the long drawn-out oratory of the members he rose and stepped towards the table to seize the object in dispute. At that critical instant there came an unexpected diversion. During the debate a number of the more important citizens had entered the room, and stood near the table round which the members Saturday suddenly, from the midst of those people, a long cloak was deftly flying, with such sure aim that it fell upon the circle of blazing candles, extinguishing them all, and in a moment throwing the room into total darkness. Confusion followed. There were quick and excited movements within the room. Outside, the crowd which had assembled set up a lusty cheer and a number of them pushed into the chamber. The members stirred uneasily in their seats. Sir Edmund angrily exclaimed, What means this, gentlemen? Is some treachery at work? Guard the charter. Light those candles instantly. The attendants hastened to obey, 
but based in procuring light in those days had a different meaning than now. The Lucifer match had not yet been dreamed of. The flint and steel was a slow conception. Several minutes elapsed before the candles again shed their feeble glow through the room. With the first gleam of light every eye was fixed upon the box which had contained the charter. It was empty. The charter was gone. Just what Sir Edmund said on this occasion history has not recorded. Those were days in which the most exalted persons dealt freely in oaths. And it is to be presumed that the infuriated governor-general used words that must have sadly shocked the pious ears of his Puritan auditors. But the charter had vanished, and could not be sworn back into the box. Where it had gone probably no one knew, certainly no one was willing to say. The members looked at one another in blank astonishment. The lookers-on manifested as blank in ignorance, though their faces beamed with delight. It had disappeared as utterly as if it had sunk into the earth and the oaths of Sir Edmund and his efforts to recover it proved alike in vain. But the mystery of that night after history has revealed, and the story can now be told. In truth, some of those present in the hall knew far more than they cared to tell. In the darkness a quick-moving person had made a lane through the throng to a neighboring window whose sash was thrown up. Out of this he leaped to the ground below. Here people were thickly gathered. Make way, he said or may have said, for his real words had not been preserved. For Connecticut and Liberty, I had the charter. The cheers redoubled. The crowd separated and let him through. In a minute he had disappeared in the darkness beyond. Sir Edmund meanwhile was storming like a fury in the hall, threatening the colony with the anger of the king, declaring that every man in the chamber should be searched, fairly raving in his disappointment. Outside, the bold fugitive sped swiftly along the dark and quiet streets, ending his course at length in front of a noble and imposing oak tree which stood before the house of the Honorable Samuel Willis, one of the colonial magistrates. This tree was hollow, the opening slender without, large within. Deeply into this cavity the fugitive thrust his arm, pushing the precious packet as far as it would go, and covering it thickly with fine debris at the bottom of the trunk. So much for Sir Edmund, he said. Let him now rob Connecticut of the charter of its liberties, if he can. Tradition for it must be acknowledged that this story is traditional though probably true in its main elements tells us that this daring individual was Captain Joseph Wadsworth, a bold and energetic militia leader who was yet to play another prominent part in the drama of colonial life. As for the Charter Oak, it long remained Hartford's most venerated historical monument. It became in time a huge tree, 25 feet in circumference near the roots. The cavity in which the Charter was hidden grew larger year by year, until it was wide enough within to contain a child though the orifice leading to it gradually closed until it was hardly large enough to admit a hand. This grand monument to liberty survived until 1856, when tempest in its boughs and decay in its trunk brought it in ruin to the earth. What followed may be briefly told. The charter lost. Sir Edmund Endros assumed control, declared the privileges granted by it to be annulled, and issued a proclamation in which the liberties of the colonies were replaced by the tyranny of autocratic rule. The colonists were forced to submit, but their submission was one of discontent and barely concealed revolt. Fortunately the tyranny of Sir Edmund lasted not long. The next year the royal tyrant of England was driven from his throne, and the chain which he had laid upon the neck of Britannia and her colonies was suddenly removed. The exultation in America knew no bounds. Andros was seized and thrown into prison in Boston, to preserve him from a ruder fate from the mob. Early in the next year he was shipped to England. Captain Wadsworth withdrew the charter from the hiding place which had safely kept its secret until that hour, 
and placed it in the hands of the delighted governor. Jurists in England had declared that it was still in force, and the former government was at once resumed, amid the most earnest manifestations of joy by the populace. Yet the liberties of Connecticut were soon again to be imperiled, and were to be saved once more by the intrepid daring of Captain Wadsworth. It was now the year 1693. William of Orange had been for some years on the English throne, while far more liberal than his predecessor. His acts had somewhat limited the former freedom of the New England colonies. He did not attempt to appoint royal governors over these truculent people, but on Governor Fletcher, of New York, were conferred privileges which went far to set aside the charter rights of the neighboring colony. In brief, this royal governor was given full power of command over the militia of Connecticut, an act in direct contravention of the charter, which placed the military control in the hands of the colonial authorities. Fletcher pressed his claim. The governor indignantly refused to yield his rights. The people ordinarily supported him. Filled with blustering indignation, Governor Fletcher left New York and came to Hartford, determined that his authority should be acknowledged. He reached there on October 26, 1693. He called upon the governor and other authorities, armed with the royal commission, and sternly demanded that the command of the militia should be handed over to him. You have played with me in this matter, he asserted. Now I demand an answer, immediate, and in two words. Yes or no, and I require that the militia of Hartford shall be instantly ordered under arms. As for the latter, it shall be as you wish, answered the governor. As for the former, we deny your authority, nor will I as you suggest, consent to hold command as your representative. The train bands were ordered out. The demand had been expected, and no long time elapsed before these citizen soldiers were assembled on the drill ground of Hartford. An awkward squad, probably if we may judge from the train bands of later days, but doubtless containing much good soldierly material, at their head stood their senior officer, Captain Wadsworth, the same bold patriot who had so signally defeated a royal governor six years before. He was now to add to his fame by a signally defeating another royal governor, when the New York potentate, accompanied by the governor and a number of the assemblymen, and by the members of his staff, reached the place. They found the valiant captain walking up and down before his men, busily engaged in putting them through their exercises. Governor Fletcher stepped forward importantly, produced his commission and instructions, and ordered them to be read to the assembled troops. The person to whom he handed them unfolded the commission, advanced to the front of the line, and prepared to read. He did not know with whom he had to deal. Beat the drums, cried Captain Wadsworth, in a stentorian voice. Instantly there broke out a roar that utterly drowned the voice of the reader. Silence! exclaimed Fletcher, angrily advancing. The drums ceased their rattling uproar. Silence once more prevailed. The reader began again. Drum! Drum! I say! thundered Wadsworth. Again such an uproar filled the air as only drum heads beaten by vigorous arms can make. Silence! Silence! cried Fletcher. Furiously, the drums ceased. Drum! Drum! I say! roared Wadsworth. Then, turning to the governor, and handling his sword significantly, he continued, in resolute tones, If I am interrupted again I will make the sun shine through you in a minute. This fierce threat ended the business. Governor Fletcher had no fancy for being riddled by this truculent captain of militia. Kin William's commission doubtless had its weight, but the kin was three thousand miles away across the seas, and Captain Wadsworth and his train bands were unpleasantly near. Governor Fletcher deemed it unwise to try too strongly the fiery temper of the Hartford militiamen, he and his suite returned hastily to New York, 
and that was the last that was heard of a royal commander for the militia of Connecticut. How Franklin came to Philadelphia. Today we may make our way from New York to Philadelphia in a two-hour flyer, with palace car accommodations. Tomorrow, perhaps, the journey will be made in 90 minutes. Such, at least, is the nearly realized dream of railroad men. A century and a half ago this journey took considerably more time, and was made with much less comfort. There is on record an interesting narrative of how the trip was made in 1723, which is worth giving as a contrast to present conditions. The traveler was no less notable a personage than Benjamin Franklin, who, much to the after advantage of the Quaker City, had run away from too severe an apprenticeship in Boston, failed to obtain employment in New York, and learned that work might be had in Philadelphia. The story of how he came thither cannot be told better than in his own homely language, so we will suffer him to speak for himself. Philadelphia was 100 miles farther, I set out, however, in a boat for Amboy, leaving my chest and things to follow me round by sea. In crossing the bay, we met with a squall that tore our rotten sail to pieces, prevented our getting into the pill, and drove us upon Long Island, in our way a drunken Dutchman, who was a passenger too fell overboard, when he was sinking, I reached through the water to his shop paid and drew him up, so that we got him in again, his ducking sobered him a little, and he went to sleep, taking first out of his pocket a book, which he desired I would write for him, the book proved to be the Pilgrim's Progress, in Dutch, well printed, and with copper plate illustrations, a fact which greatly interested the book-loving traveler, on approaching the island, we found it was a place where there could be no landing, there being a great surge on the stony beach, so we dropped anchor, and swung out our cable towards the shore, some people came down to the shore, and hallooed to us, as we did to them, but the wind was so high, and the surge so loud, that we could not understand each other, there were some small boats near the shore, and we made signs, and called to them to fetch us, but they either did not comprehend us, or it was impracticable, so they went off, night approaching, we had no remedy but to have patience till the wind abated, and in the meantime the boatman and myself concluded to sleep, if we could, and so we crowded into the hatches, where we joined the Dutchman, who was still wet, and the spray, breaking over the head of our boat, leaked through to us, so that we were soon almost as wet as he, in this manner we lay all night, with very little rest, but the wind abating the next day, we made a shift to reach Emboe before night, having been thirty hours on the water, without vandals, or any drink but a bottle of filthy rum, the water we sailed on being salt, the story seems hard to credit, the travelers had already spent fifteen times the period it now takes to make the complete journey, and were but fairly started, while they had experienced almost as much hardship as though they were wrecked mariners, cast upon a desolate coast, the remainder of the journey was no less wearisome, the traveler thus continues his narrative, in the evening I found myself very feverish, and went to bed, but having read somewhere that cold water drunk plentifully was good for a fever, I followed the prescription, and sweat plentifully most of the night, my fever left me, and in the morning, crossing the ferry, I proceeded on my journey on foot, having fifty miles to go to Burlington, where I was told I should find boats that would carry me the rest of the way to Philadelphia, it rained very hard all the day, I was thoroughly soaked, and by noon a good deal tired, so I stopped at a poor inn, where I stayed all night, beginning now to wish I had never left home. I made so miserable a figure, too, that I found, by the questions asked me, 
I was suspected to be some runaway indentured servant, and in danger of being taken up on that suspicion. However, I proceeded next day, and in the evening got to an inn, within eight or ten miles of Burlington, kept by one Dr. Brown. He entered into conversation with me while I took some refreshment, and, finding I had read a little, became very obliging and friendly. Our acquaintance continued all the rest of his life. He had been, I imagine, an ambulatory quack doctor, for there was no town in England, nor any country in Europe, of which he could not give a very particular account. He had some letters, and was ingenious, but he was an infidel, and wickedly undertook, some years after, to turn the Bible into doggerel verse, as Cotton had formerly done with Virgil. By this means he set many facts in a ridiculous light, and might have done mischief with weak minds if his work had been published, but it never was. At his house I lay that night, and arrived the next morning at Burlington, but had the mortification to find that the regular boats were gone a little before, and no other expected to go before Tuesday, this being Saturday, wherefore I returned to an old woman in the town, of whom I had bought some gingerbread to eat on the water, and asked her advice. She proposed to lodge me till a passage by some other boat occurred. I accepted her offer, being much fatigued by traveling on foot. Understanding I was a printer, she would have had me remain in that town and follow my business. Being ignorant what stock was necessary to begin with, she was very hospitable, gave me a dinner of ox cheek with great goodwill, accepting only of a pot of ale in return, and I thought myself fixed till Tuesday should come. However, walking in the evening by the side of the river, a boat came by which I found was going towards Philadelphia, with several people in her. They took me in and, as there was no wind, we rode all the way, and about midnight, not having yet seen the city, some of the company were confident we must have passed it, 